16, beginning in verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we witnessed against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have only hoped in Christ in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. Let's pray. Lord, we um, have just commemorated the the death of Christ, and we do this um, until he comes again, which reminds us of his resurrection. And we are not most to be pitied, as we do know that Jesus is risen from the dead. I pray that you would encourage and strengthen our hearts, God, in the reality of the one who gave himself for us and who lives today to save us, and that our hope would be strengthened, Lord, and that you would be just free to work in us for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I appreciate Noah filling in for me last Sunday. Um, he doesn't preach much, but he's told us as the elders, he met with us a few months back and, and just, um, just made himself available. And we really appreciate that and um, just his, his desire to, to be willing and available to the Lord for what God would have. Um, I was down with the family. All of us were in Lake Jackson. Two of the grandkids were having or just had birthdays down there. And, and that's my son, Nathan, and daughter-in-law, Davina, my number one daughter-in-law, because um, she was the first to marry one of my sons. So that makes her number one. Um, <clears throat> Brooklyn's my favorite because she was the first to give us grandchildren. And so, but Nathan and Davina are going to be moving to Canada probably next year. So the times together are, are, um, are um, precious. And so we were thankful we could go down there and be with them. Um, you ever been in a conversation with somebody and they say something that's just really outlandish? And knowing how to respond at those times is difficult. And I'm reminded of the proverb that says, when a wise man has a controversy with a fool, the fool either rages or laughs. And I don't want to be a fool, but I tell you, sometimes when I'm in a controversy with somebody and they say something just really outlandish, I just want to, I'm just, I either might get mad or just laugh. What do you do? And, um, you know, I, I have a friend who's only been to Texas a couple of times, and, and she comes up um, on those occasions with her husband when we've had meetings at his hill, and, and she has commented to me, I've been to the hill country, and I didn't see any hills. And I'm just thinking, what do you say to that? 
And, and you know, and I just a couple weeks ago, I drove from Comfort out to toward Tarpley and Lakey in that area, and it's just hills everywhere. On Friday evening, we drove the back roads up north from Fredericksburg up toward um, Lano, hills everywhere. What do you say? And then to top that, she says, I've had brisket, and I'll never eat it again. <laughs> well, now I think, should I just slap her? You know, or what? <laughs> and I'm just going, those are fighting words. Man. Paul writes 58 verses in this chapter about the resurrection because people are denying the resurrection. Christians are denying the resurrection. Them's fighting words. I mean, how in the world, talk about outlandish, that you can claim to be saved, that you can place your faith in Christ, and yet deny that we will be raised from the dead after we die. It's amazing to me that Paul can speak so rationally, logically, reasonably in this chapter. I think this probably is not only the longest chapter that he wrote, but probably took him the longest time to write it. Because I imagine he would have been pretty heated over this topic. But you don't see it. He just is measured and reasonable, and he plods through this, and it is huge. Just huge. We had a guest speaker at the Hill this week, at his Hill, and, and when he gave staff devotions for us on Thursday, he did something a little different, and, and he said, I just want to um, encourage the staff here at his Hill to really think about how to reach the current generation. And, um, and he pulled from where Paul says that he's become all things to all men. And, so, and he says, we need to understand who people are and the audience that we're talking to is very valid. And he pointed out that, you know, that sociologists have, have studied, and, and he gave the exact person's name, I don't remember who. But anyway, he said that um, this one sociologist in particular has noted that the baby boomer generation, which that's my generation, um, is really very truth-oriented. That didn't surprise me. And he said, then the next generation, and this goes in cycles, he says the next generation following the baby boom generation, I think they're called Generation X, uh, are very, um, they, their, their question is not what is truth, but what is real. And then the next generation, the millennial generation, those are like, the, I think they're 19 to 34 or something like that. Um, their question is, um, what is good? And then the generation that's coming up next, their question is, what is beautiful? And so what is true, what is real, what is good, and what is beautiful? And then apparently it repeats itself again. So the next generation, which we haven't had those yet, they'll be again asking the question, what is true? But then he makes the observation that every one of those questions is an on-ramp to what is hope. Everybody wants hope. And so that's the big thing. Now, I, I believe it is, thinking about it, reflecting on it for the last couple of days, and it, it, um, I don't know whether that's a good generational descriptions, but I think it is true that everyone is looking for hope. Well, you take away the resurrection, there's no hope. 
There is no hope. And that's what this chapter is about. It's about hope and about the importance of the resurrection. So we already looked two Sundays ago at the gospel, the heart of the gospel, which Paul lays out in these first 11 verses. And, and to not oversimplify it, I don't believe he's doing that, but he said that it is Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins and he rose again from the grave, just as scripture says. It is a historical faith. It is grounded in history. The core of the gospel is Jesus' death and resurrection. The evidence for it, he gave three things. One, eyewitnesses, 500 of them, who saw Jesus at one time, most of them still alive when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. The scripture itself and all the changed lives. One of those principally being Paul, who said, I am not what I was. I am what I am because of the grace of God. That God is alive and he has saved me and I'm a different man because of the living Jesus Christ. So now he says, in beginning in verse 12, and we may get beyond this paragraph, I'm hopeful, but we'll see. Now if Christ is preached that he has not, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? They're not denying that Christ rose from the dead. They're denying that we rise from the dead. And Paul's going, incredible, unbelievable. How could you possibly come to that conclusion? Outlandish. And he's going to give six responses to that belief that, or that declaration that we are not raised from the dead, only Jesus is raised from the dead. And his first one just begins just simply with the idea of, um, of first fruits. And I'm kind of, I'm, I'm moving on really to the next paragraph before I need to. But let me just go back here to verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. Because it's a package. And he's going to get into that more in the next paragraph. It's a package. You can't have the resurrection of Christ without that having implication for everyone else's resurrection. And if Christ has not been raised, then Paul says our preaching is vain, empty, meaningless. We've wasted breath. And the same is true for your faith. What good and that's the truth, real, good. What good is your faith? It's none. What good is it to place your faith in Christ who is raised from the dead if you are not raised from the dead? Pretty interesting statement. What good is it that Jesus Christ rose from the dead if you are not risen from the dead? If his resurrection does not make an impact on you, then what was the point? It's a question we should all ask. Is the fact that Christ rose from the dead, does it make any difference in our lives for each of us personally? Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses. So Christ, if, if the dead are not raised, and number one, Christ has not been raised, number two, our preaching and your faith are in vain, and number three, 
We're false witnesses. Now that's a big deal. If a prophet in the Old Testament gives false witness concerning what God has said, he's to be executed. And it seems that Paul's picking up on that here where he says, we are false witnesses against God. If we say that God has raised him from the dead when in fact he is not raised. Huge. And then he says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. So what difference does it make that Christ has been raised? Because we are not free from our sins. We are not forgiven if Christ is not raised. And if we're not raised, then Christ isn't raised because the connection is inseparable. And if Christ is not raised, our faith is absolutely worth nothing. We are still in our sins. We are not forgiven. We are not free from the power of sin. Paul develops that a lot in particularly Romans about being in Christ and not being in the flesh or in sin. He doesn't for a minute say that you cannot sin or will not sin if you are a Christian. But his point is, is that you are no longer under the dominion of sin, the mastery of sin. You are no longer wedded to sin, as he says in Romans 6 and Romans 7. We are not in the flesh, as he says in Romans 8. But we are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, there is hope. We do not have to continue to sin. We are and can be free from sin. Not its presence, but from its dominating power and control over our lives. Because Christ lives. And then in verse 18, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, the people who died believing in Jesus, have perished. They, have, they, they are not alive in the presence of God. They are simply dead. If we have hoped have only hoped in Christ in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. So if Christ, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. Our preaching and your faith are in vain. We are false witness of God. Your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. The dead have not gone to be with the Lord, but they are simply dead, perished. And we are of all men most to be pitied. Why would he say that? Because if there is no life after this life, then this is all there is. And Paul's going to say a little later on, if this is all there is, then why suffer? As Paul says, they have, he and the other apostles have willingly suffered. Why deny yourself? Why be moral? There is no Good reason to be good if the dead are not raised. You might as well just live it up and do all that you want to do. I remember Randall Draper, pastor friend in San Antonio, who said he's told um, his church, if you do not know Jesus Christ, then why are you even here today? There's a lot better things you can be doing with your time. If you don't think there's an afterlife, 
If you don't think that you're going to stand before God in eternity one day and give an account for how you've lived, then why are you coming to church? You might as well be just living it up because this is the best you're ever going to have it. Pretty straight preaching. This is telling us if we have only hoped in Christ in this life, this is telling us that there is a hope beyond this life. There is another life. We know from other scripture that our hope is Christ. It's not just that Christ gives hope, but Christ is the hope of the believer. Many Christians hope in Christ only for the next life. But Paul's point is, if you are hoping in Christ in the next life, then it should give you and does give you hope for this life. Hope in the next life gives hope for this life. There is no hope, another way of putting it, there is no hope for this life if there is no hope for the next. And this is what everybody is wanting, hope. And if there is no resurrection, Hindus would say there's a reincarnation. What hope is that? You might come back as a gnat. If you're really lucky, you come back as a cow because they worship the cows. Cows, God. And you could come back as a cow. Man, the only religion in the world that gives hope is Christianity. And it's a living hope because our hope is in the person of Jesus Christ. Our hope is not based on works. Our hope is not based on merit. Our hope is Christ who has given himself for us and risen from the dead and who has promised to usher us into his very presence in our last breath on earth. It is a living hope. Because we have a hope in the next life, it gives us hope in this life. Life is hard. And for some people, it is incredibly, incredibly but there is no one who has placed their faith in Christ who does not have hope, not only for the future, but for now. Every time I, I, I think or talk about hope, I remember that day when I was leaving the pediatric intensive care unit in San Antonio because um, our oldest son, Nathan, was there as a baby. And we didn't know whether he would live or not. That pediatric intensive care, and I've not been in there since then, so I don't know if it's still organized the same, but it wasn't like any other hospital unit I'd ever been on, where all the patients, and they were children 12 and under that were in there, were all um, close enough that they could see each other, and, and parents could interact with each other. There was some separation, but you got to know the other parents pretty well. And you got familiar with what was going on with the other kids and why, why they were in there. And that evening when I left to come home, I was in the elevator with one of the dads. And I knew his, his 12-year-old son was, was paralyzed from the neck down. And I didn't know why. And, and we both got in the elevator and both of us just slumped against the sides of the elevator as it made its way down to the first floor. And I, and I 
asked him, I said, tell me about, about your son. I, I've, I've seen his condition. What, what's happened? And he said he was, he was bench pressing. And he, he, it's a freak accident. He turned his head to the side as he strained to push forward. And one of the vertebrae in his spine popped to the side and then came right back in line. But the damage was done. Severed his spinal cord. And then I'll never forget that dad. He said, as he was just slumped against the elevator walls, he says, he says, I am powerless, but I am not hopeless. And I thought, couldn't have said it better myself. We can be just undone, absolutely powerless, helpless. Helpless were the words that he used. I am helpless, but I am not hopeless. Why would anyone want to deny the resurrection? Because if Christ is not raised, then we aren't raised, and if we aren't raised, there's no hope. Why would you want to live in this world and have no hope whatsoever? There is hope for us. This world is not all that there is. That in itself is hope. But because we know this world is not all that there is, there is hope now. We can get up out of the bed in the morning and know that it's going to be a terrible day and still have hope. Who can say that? And our hope is not that it's going to become maybe better. But our hope is in one who sustains us, who encourages us, who blesses us, and who even has the power to turn everything around and make good out of it. And that's a hope for those who know him, who have been called by him, not the hope for the unbeliever. Romans 8.28 is for the Christian. The unbeliever has no hope until he places his faith in Christ. To put these six things on a positive side, Christ has been raised. Our preaching and our faith are significant, not vain. We are not false witnesses. We are true witnesses. Our faith is not worthless. Our faith is valuable. We are not still in our sins. We are forgiven and freed from sin. And we are not most to be pitied. The world says we are. Nietzsche, the German philosopher, theologian, said Christianity is man's greatest misfortune. We are not most to be pitied. We are to be emulated, envied, and respected if people truly understood. So in verse 20, Paul says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. He has been raised from the dead. But again, nobody was denying that. But he puts now, puts the implication to that. Christ has been raised to the dead. That is, that is a truth that these people are not denying. But here's the implication. He is the first fruits of those who are asleep. 
of everybody who's died, and for the Christian it's merely sleep, his resurrection is symbolic of the first fruits or everything that's going to come afterwards. In Israel, this was one of the feasts of Israel, the feast of first fruits. And so when the harvest began, the farmer was to take the very first that he reaped from his harvest and he was to present it to the Lord. And knowing in faith that there would be much more to come in coming days and weeks. But he would give the first portion to the Lord. And it was a faith, hope, offering. He was hopeful that there would be more to come. He really didn't have any question. If there's been some, there'll be more. And, and Paul's making that connection here to Jesus. If Jesus has been raised, he is merely the first fruits. And there is much more to follow. So there's a connection here, he says, between Christ and everyone else. And then he says there's a connection between Adam and Christ. Verse 21. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. He says, think about it. How did death enter into this world? Romans chapter 5, he expounds on this much more. How did death come into this world? There was a man named Adam, and he took of a particular piece of fruit, and in doing so, when he ate it, he sinned. And guess what? Sin and death spread to all mankind, with no exception. All men sinned, and all men died because of Adam. So... I wonder how that's going to be in heaven for Adam. Will he be the last guy we want to talk to or the first guy we want to talk to? But it's all because of Adam. We die and we sin because of Adam. Now, if we had been there, we would have done the same thing Adam did. But the point is, if death could spread to all men because of one man, then all can be raised because of one man. And so Jesus is the last Adam. Paul's going to give Jesus that title here in 1 Corinthians later on. We have the first Adam and the last Adam. The first Adam brought death to all men. And the last Adam brings resurrection to all men. All are going to rise from the dead. Reading verse 22 again. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. It doesn't say all shall be saved. There is a huge difference. It does say every person will be brought to life, and all means all. There is no one, believer or unbeliever, who's going to remain in the grave. Every single person who's ever lived is going to be raised from the grave. Look at the parallel passage to this, probably the best one, Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Just picking it up in, in verse 4. 
It says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life. So this would be after the tribulation. These are tribulation saints who have been persecuted and martyred. And after the tribulation, he raises them from the dead. And they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life. The rest of the dead would be everyone who has never placed their faith in Christ. All unbelievers from from Cain all the way through the tribulation. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. What is the first resurrection? Old Testament just says there's a resurrection. And the Old Testament says everybody's going to be raised. We come now to the New Testament, and in in John chapter 5, and in here in Revelation 20, we're we're told that that general revelation is actually, resurrection is actually two resurrections. There is first a resurrection unto life, and then there is a resurrection unto death. And the resurrection of life is actually in three parts. First, there is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was raised unto life. Second will be when the rapture of the church takes place. First Thessalonians says that we will not be preceded by those who have fallen asleep in Christ. But the dead in Christ shall rise first. Baptist pastor friend of mine says that means Baptists are going to heaven first. And um, some of you get that later. And so, so, but when Christ returns to rapture the church, there will be a resurrection immediately prior to the rapture of all those who died placing their faith in Christ. This is, again, part of the first resurrection. Christ was raised unto life. There will be those who are dead in Christ when the rapture takes place. And then after the rapture, there's going to be lots of people that come to faith during the tribulation. And many of them are going to lose their lives, literally lose their heads, according to this passage. And then Jesus will come to the earth at the end of the tribulation to establish his kingdom. In the process of coming, he raises to life all of those people who died placing their faith in Christ during the tribulation who have added to those who are, who are living because of their salvation. And so this is the resurrection unto life and is a resurrection of all of those believers. But there's another resurrection. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Resurrection unto life. Over these, the second death has no power. That is the resurrection unto death. The second death is a resurrection unto death. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So, as one person once said, you are either going to be born twice and die once. Or you're going to be born once and you're going to die twice. Because if you've placed your faith in Christ, you've been born again a second time. You have a natural birth and you have a spiritual birth. And you will die only one time. And when you are raised, you are raised to life. But if you do not place your faith in Jesus Christ, the scripture makes it very clear. You've only been born once. 
physically if you've not placed your faith in Christ. And you will die physically. And then you will be raised from the dead to face eternal death. And every person who is not part of the first resurrection will be part of that second resurrection unto death. And eventually, after judgment, cast into the lake of fire. This is very sobering. So not only does the truth of the resurrection give hope to the believer, it should put the fear of God into the unbeliever. There is direct implication that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead for all people, not just for the Christian. So there's a connection between Christ and our resurrection by virtue of the first fruits. There is a connection between Christ and Adam. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Not all saved, but all will be brought to life. And some will be brought to life to die for eternity. Verse 23, but each in his own order. And so there's an order to the resurrection. It doesn't all happen at the same time. And that's what we just looked at there in Revelation 20. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. And then comes the end when he delivers up, this would be the end of the millennium, when he delivers up his kingdom, the kingdom to God and Father, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. So we are living in what the scripture would describe the end times of the current age. The current age, according to the Bible, according to Daniel's prophecies, would be what the Bible calls the age of the Gentiles, where Israel is under Gentile domination. We're coming to the end of that. And one of the ways that we can know that is because of specifically Daniel's prophecies. And he said that there would be four world empires. And the last of those empires would be the Roman Empire. And that when Jesus comes again to establish his kingdom on earth. He will crush that empire and all other human empires. Now that Roman empire didn't cease to exist um, after the days of Constantine. In a formal way it did. But all Western world countries all over Europe and all the commonwealth of, of um, Great Britain and the United States, most of the, of the world, in fact, still lives under the Roman form of government. We have a justice department, we have an executive branch, and we have a legislative branch. We inherited that from the Romans. And there's never been anything else that's taken its place. And so the Muslims would love to have their caliphate that would take over the world. It's not going to happen. They may get pretty close to it happening, but the Roman form of government is going to be here when Jesus comes again and destroys all the kingdoms of this world. It's not going to be replaced with anything else. And when he comes, he will reign on earth for a thousand years. And at the end of that time, when he hands over all rule and authority and all power to his father. So verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to God, to the God and father, when he has abolished all rule, all authority and all power. All that's left is his own. For he must reign, Jesus must reign, until he has put all the enemies under his feet. 
So again, what is the point of his own resurrection? To, to subdue everything. And if we are not raised, if all men are not raised, then Jesus never rules. There has to be a resurrection of all men if Jesus is going to fulfill his purpose to rule completely over everything. And the ultimate agenda that Jesus has is to destroy death. There's no greater enemy that each of us has than death. And Jesus came to destroy death. And if we are not raised from the dead, death wins, not Jesus. And Jesus wins. So death will be destroyed. It is the last enemy. I love that concept. That death is the enemy of God. God did not create death. God did not bring death into this world. Death was not why God created this world. Nobody hates death more than God does. And I tell you, I take great hope in knowing that every time I have to attend a funeral. Nobody hates this more than God does. And this isn't the final story. Jesus will defeat death. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. So Jesus is over everything and he will conquer death. But when all things are subjected to him, when it's all done and even death has been defeated, then the son himself who subjected all things to him then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to Him that God may be all in all. So when the millennium is done, Jesus has had His thousand years of ruling on earth. And He hands, He stands before the Father and He says, it has all been submitted. It has all been put into subjection. Even death, our greatest enemy, has been defeated. And He puts it at the feet of the Father and says, it is done. It is truly done. And from that point on, we enter into what is truly the eternal state where the Father God is ruling over all this world. So we see in this paragraph that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. If Christ rose, then everyone will rise. We see that there's a connection between Adam and Christ. If one man can bring death into this world, then one man can cause the resurrection of all. We see that... that in Christ, all will be made alive, and all means all. There is an order to the resurrection. It'll be those who have died believing in Christ will rise first. And then at the end of the millennium, all those who died not placing their faith in Christ from Cain all the way through to the end of the millennium, they will all be raised. And then to the end of the tribulation, they'll all be raised, and then there will be finally a day of judgment. And then Jesus will have defeated death itself. And then he himself will, be, will, will completely submit himself to the Father because his job is done. And in the end, God will be all in all. There's nothing academic here. We don't have time for the next paragraph. I knew we wouldn't. But in that next paragraph, Paul's going to say, all of this has direct bearing on our morality. Nothing.
could be less academic. It is intensely practical. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And we too will be raised from the dead. The resurrection is God's means of bringing all things into subjection to himself and securing his glory. Without the resurrection, death and sin win. Without the resurrection, sin is not punished. There is no justice. And life is pointless. It is meaningless. We might as well just submit ourselves to anarchy if this is all that there is. The resurrection reverses the power of death. The resurrection proves that life is greater than death. And to deny the resurrection is to deny the Father his glory and supremacy. We may think this is all there is. God is saying, we haven't seen anything yet. He will put all things under his feet, even death. And that is hope. I'll close this in prayer. I thank you, God, that we have been born again to a living hope, as your word says. We are not most to be pitied among men. But we have secured God merely by faith in Christ, what all this world is longing for, hope. And we thank you, God, for bringing us into that living hope, Jesus Christ. Lord, I know that all of us are either going through trials or we will. And some of those trials are just enough to reduce us to just tears, to make us feel utterly helpless. But I praise you, God. We will never be without hope. And I pray that you would use these truths, that Jesus lives. There is a future, and there is hope for today, because Christ is alive, that you would use these truths, Lord, to strengthen our hearts, that we would not despair, that we would continue to hope, and that we would endure because of that hope that you have caused to spring up within each of our hearts. Thank you, God, for this great salvation that you have brought us into. In Jesus' name, amen.